Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. Oh, the College Football Fix is back with another weekly edition. And Paul, this may be the craziest week yet since we rebooted this podcast because college football has just gone off the rails since the last time we talked. Since Thanksgiving, as all of you know by now, Lincoln Riley took the head coaching job at USC. Brian Kelly left Notre Dame to go to LSU. Oklahoma's now open. Notre Dame's now open. A few other jobs have been filled, but uh, in some ways it feels like the playoff stuff, at least until Saturday, is, is just secondary to the madness going on in the coaching world because these kind of moves just historically do not happen, and now we've had two of them in the span of basically 24 hours. Yeah, the move from OU to USC is unmatched in the history of the sport, certainly the modern history, to go – from one top five program to another top five program directly without that, you know, Miami Dolphins pit stop is unheard of. It's never happened before. And a coach willingly leaving Notre Dame for another college job has never happened before. So uh, college football coaching circuit has jumped the shark. This is like when you play NCAA football and all of a sudden guys start like taking weird jobs and weird things start happening. And Eastern Michigan's the best program in the country in like 2027. Um, the matrix has glitched in a major way. So I don't really know what to make of it, except that it's an embarrassing moment in a lot of ways for the sport and for coaches who like like to say, hey, I got into this job because I want to be with the kids. But uh, you got into this job, it seems like, because of the zeros. And so it's it's I'm, I'm specifically talking about Kelly more than Lincoln Riley. So there's a lot to unpack here. I know you have thoughts on Brian Kelly, and we should probably begin to him. Well, I just think the way he's pulled this off and orchestrated it is has lacked – class in a lot of ways. And I think it's, there's two different competing issues here. One is I don't begrudge anybody for taking a job that they want to take. If they feel like there's an opportunity that's better for them and their family, Brian Kelly has been in Notre Dame 12 years. He's put in the time. He got that thing back going to a very high level as good as they've been since really better than they've been since the Lou Holtz era. And if he feels like, hey, I'm 60 years old and it's time for me to take one last move here and try to win a national championship at LSU, no issue with that. But when you do it right now, with Notre Dame still in the mix for the playoff, it would not take very much for Notre Dame to get in this playoff. They still have a chance theoretically to compete for a national championship and you leave – and the players kind of have to deal with the fallout of this while they're still trying to get to the ultimate goal. I, I just – I think it lacks class. I think it's a very sad commentary on on where we are as a sport. And I think it's something that college football needs to look at and figure out if there's some way to 
prevent this because when the playoff goes to 12 teams and you have 20-something in the mix going into these final couple weeks, I think it's something that could theoretically happen a lot more. And I think it's bad. It's a bad look for the sport because it basically just says, oh, this playoff that, that you guys have spent all year long hyping up, yeah, it means so little that one of the six coaches who might be in it just bailed. Yeah, we should we should talk about that and table that Notre Dame playoff conversation. I'm sure we'll talk about it as we get into the games. The timing is disgraceful. The timing is disgraceful because, like you said, it leaves a team. Uh, there's obviously things could happen. I don't see Notre Dame getting into the four at this point, um, just based off comments by Gary Barter on Tuesday night. I don't yeah, see. But it. How fair is that? That's not fair to the players. That's like the, the, the committee should not. But that's the it's point. Not something the committee should be doing is is evaluating Notre Dame as far they, as Brian Kelly versus without Brian Kelly. But they're doing, and, and the quote the quote that is telling is that hey, um, we take into account when players or coaches are unavailable. They've never said that before. They never needed to. Um, but he Barta equated losing your star quarterback and what that would mean for a matchup to losing your best coach uh, or your head coach. So. Um, what you think about the committee doing that is one thing, uh, and that is separate from the fact that Kelly has placed Notre Dame in this situation. Kids that he recruited, 110 of them that he brought into the program, um, that he told that uh, you were one of the best teams in the country, that he got to this point, remarkable achievement, to leave them high and dry at this point um, is bad. And look, the thing that really I think is, is uh, worthy of unpacking a little bit there's this like cleanup on aisle four of people saying, well, he felt like he could leave now because he's got Notre Dame in a really good place. Are you kidding me? He wouldn't leave if they were four and eight. He'd be quicker to leave if they were four and eight. So don't give me that trash. That's garbage. He left because the opportunity was too good for him to pass down. Good for him, but he didn't think about the, the collateral damage of it. So I, it's unfortunate for Notre Dame because if he had gotten them into the playoff, it would have been one of the great achievements in my mind by a coach in the playoff era, considering how bad they looked in September. I think one of the things that really started to occur to me yesterday as I was just trying to make sense of all of this, there's a commonality between Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly. There's a lot that's different about those two as coaches, but I think what's what connects them is Lincoln Riley got Oklahoma to the playoff three times. Twice they got their heads beat in, and once with Baker Mayfield, they, they should have beaten Georgia uh, in that semifinal game in the Rose Bowl, they let it slip mm -hmm. away. They lose in overtime. But basically, he's 0 for 3 in the playoff. Brian Kelly took Notre Dame there twice, and both times they've gotten blown out, once by Clemson, once by Alabama. You can even go back a little bit to 2012, which is a little unfair, but just hear me out here. They, they go undefeated in the regular season. They play Alabama in the national championship game at the BCS and they, they get their doors blown off there, too. So both programs, really good, win a lot of games, dominate their space. But when they get into a playoff situation, because, again, this is not the bowl era anymore, where BYU in 1984 goes to the Holiday Bowl, beats 6-6 six and six Michigan, and because they're undefeated, they're declared the national champion. That doesn't happen anymore. Now you've got to go to a playoff, and you've got to beat two elite teams. When it expands, you're going to have to probably go beat three elite teams to win a national title. And there's just been that that little 
part missing from Oklahoma and Notre Dame that they just can't quite get to that level. And maybe those two coaches just looked at it and said, I've done all I could to get us over that hump, and we just can't recruit quite as well as Alabama, LSU, Clemson to get us over that hump. Is that is is do you think that's what those two guys are thinking? And then maybe the playoffs actually made the made the pool of, of people that can win a national championship actually smaller. Yeah, I mean, going back to BCS, certainly that you're down to two teams and not four teams. No, you're absolutely right. I think that there's obviously a motivation about, uh, hey, I need to win a national championship and I can do it easier at one of these places. It's kind of our fault. Like, we've covered the sport at this point um, by a result of how the national championship is unfolded by uh, you're only successful if you win it. We've talked about this before. So I think if Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly only think that they can be labeled successful longtime coaches if they win a national championship, then they're going to places that will make it a little bit easier. Um, if we can just talk about the coaches for a moment themselves, they're sure. both coaching upgrades. I mean, we can, we can just be honest about that. Brian Kelly is, a, is an enormous upgrade over Orgeron in terms of the ability to run a program. And Lincoln Riley, uh, you know, I like Clay Helton a lot, but he's, he's, a, he's an upgrade over Clay Helton at SC. So, yeah, they've eased their way to win a national championship. They've made their programs better. Um, you know, I don't want to get too much into the hand-wringing. I just don't feel like these unfolded the right ways for these two programs. And uh, for Kelly in particular, I think there's a bit of a stain on him um, that is going to take a lot to kind of wash off. It may take a national championship. It'll certainly take time for him to be welcomed back at Notre Dame, even as the winningest coach in program history. Yeah, I agree. I don't buy the stuff that that Brian Kelly doesn't fit at LSU or because he's from the Midwest, he won't socially or whatever in South Louisiana. It, it might be awkward. I don't really buy into that. The guy's a really good coach. He's he's going to do well there. I, I have no doubt in my mind. Now, look, you're in the SEC, and you've got to go through a lot of great programs to win SEC titles and national titles, and you, you need luck on your side in a lot of ways and you need to do a great job in recruiting. It's not going to be easy, but I would not be surprised if he does win it all once, once at LSU. Um, yeah, but let's say one thing, like you can't blame, let's not give coaches credit, all the credit or all the blame for wins or losses, but for Brian Kelly in specific, the next good SEC team that he beats will be the first. Um, yeah, he hasn't no, beaten one. True. So that gauntlet is not Purdue, Michigan, USC, Virginia gauntlet. That's Alabama, and then Tennessee or whomever. Then it's Ole Miss, and then it's Auburn. It's a different animal. It's going to be really interesting, really, really, really interesting. So as far as Lincoln Riley goes, just to give people a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, on Friday I started to hear from a lot of people, and I'm not talking about Twitter, and I'm not talking about people who who – trade and rumor mongering like from legitimate people in the industry of college sports. Is there something going on with Lincoln Riley and LSU? I mean, that was the big rumor Friday all over the place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to the point where I know that people at Oklahoma were, were, were nervous about it. And I know that people in Baton Rouge thought Lincoln Riley was going to be the next coach. How surprised were you? A, when he said in the post-game press conference, I am not going to be the next coach at LSU, and then turned around the next day, and all of a sudden, boom, he's the head coach at USC. I mean, to me, 
I was pretty shocked. Yeah, definitely shocked. Um, nice little turn of phrase by Lincoln Riley. I mean, technically true. He did not lie to anybody. Um, surprised because of the idea that SC, like uh, from what we know about Lincoln Riley, um, culturally, you had a really funny line I thought on Twitter about um, like you and I, you and me, I think we're both taking the SC job. We both want to be in LA. Weather's great. You know, I want to be on the water. Fantastic. But most coaches aren't like us. Most coaches don't want to go from, what's he from? Horseshoe, Texas, some podunk zero it's some stop. Town I, yeah. It's some Moose town I've never heard of. Yeah. And he's going out to LA. I do wonder about how he fits from a cultural perspective, but I think those fears are, are allayed a lot by the fact of OU's recruiting success in SoCal. Like, obviously, he's connecting with the people down there. So I'm not too concerned about it. But nonetheless, yeah, I, I thought uh, you mentioned that that uh, Riley-LSU connection on Friday and that we were thinking that could be a possibility. Um, that made a whole lot more sense from the perspective of personality and, and culture than the SC job. But um, gets back to your original point. These guys want to win national championships. I think Lincoln Riley saw – hate to say the path of least resistance because it's SC. Let's not disrespect the fact that it's a major, major top five all-time job, but it is an easier pathway to the playoff. And then we'll see what happens. But he can get there a lot with SC um, if they get that program back running, certainly from a recruiting perspective. Yeah. You know, I always sort of bristle when somebody says, well, would you rather live in Norman, Oklahoma or L.A.? And, you know, first of all, there's there's good everywhere. There's pluses and minuses wherever you live. And trust me, I don't think Lincoln Riley had any problem living in Norman, Oklahoma. The, the, just the lifestyle football coaches live generally. I don't think like – these are not NBA players where there's some big like social upside to being in Beverly Hills. You know, that doesn't that doesn't really register for college football coaches. These guys are watching film, recruiting and running practice. And and then they're with their families. That's like where they spend most of their time. Some people don't want to raise their kids in L.A. Like, I totally get that. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I don't think I don't think Lincoln Riley is going to be out partying with LeBron James. Like, that's just not you know what I mean? No, I don't think so. And I mean, and I shouldn't even say LeBron because LeBron's, you know, LeBron's a family man or whatever. But, you know, Anthony Davis, like he's not he's not going out there to go, you know, hit the club scene. That's not that's not what he's out there to do. And, yeah, the weather's nice and all that stuff. But a lot of uh, people, especially college football coaches, really appreciate the fact that in these small college towns, they're a five or ten minute drive away from their office. You know what I mean? And in L.A., yeah you're probably living 45 minutes at least and maybe more if there's traffic away from away from the campus. But regardless, like same thing I said about Kelly applies to him. Um, yeah, he's not from L.A., but he's a great football coach and the players he's kind of players he's going to recruit, especially the skill talent that you can get out in California. He's going to get those guys and they're going to come play for him and they're going to score a lot of points. Now, I still think there's questions in the big picture about line of scrimmage. There's not all. There's not maybe as much line of scrimmage talent out on the West Coast and in California. And you still, I think, to to win titles, have to go get enough guys like that uh, that can that can beat an Alabama or a Georgia. We'll see. But um, I think if Lincoln Riley. 
I th- let me put it this way. I think if Oklahoma had never done this SEC thing, I don't think Lincoln Riley's leaving for, for SC or anywhere. I think he would be at Oklahoma for a, a good long while. But I just think them moving to the SEC, and we don't know exactly when they're going to join, but it's going to be in the next couple years sometime, it just introduces an element of uncertainty to what Oklahoma, the next iteration of Oklahoma football is going to be, that I can totally see him saying, yeah, I'll let somebody else deal with that. Yeah, a lot of question marks. I totally get that part of it. Um, Costa, why, like we we're, we might talk about who they're going to target next. That's why you look at a guy like Venables, yeah. not just connection to the program, but the fact that he's he's tied in down south. Um, I don't I don't think Oklahoma is going to turn into Nebraska, but yeah, I, I would be concerned about what the program is going to look like when they get into a 16 team SEC and they're out in the West or whatever division they're in. So. Um, Again, I don't want to say he's scared of the SEC, but, like, yeah, I take that into account. As much as the fact that I'd want to be in L.A., I'd also take into account the the fact that I'm a really well-regarded head coach right now, and this may be the opportunity to get this job. An opportunity like this might not exist in two years. When Oklahoma goes into the SEC, there's going to be years where 9-3 and three is good. And 9-3 and three would not be good for Oklahoma – the last five years that Lincoln Riley's been there. So it's a concern. You know, and I also think that Oklahoma, what they've done to build their program into the best of the Big 12 is they get a lot of players out of Texas, and then they pick their spots. They've, they've gone out west and gotten some guys. They can go cherry pick a guy here or there from the southeast. But when you're in the SEC, every road game is a is – a, every recruit – I'm sorry, every recruiting battle is a road game. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go to Texas and recruit against Texas and Texas A&M. You're going into Georgia recruiting against Georgia. You're going into Louisiana recruiting against LSU. Arkansas recruiting against Arkansas. Like, you have to win a lot of road games in recruiting to, to make it work at Oklahoma, even more when they go to the SEC than when they were in the Big 12. We'll see if they're equipped for that. I think Venables, Venables would be a good hire, I think, Certainly, if I'm Joe Castiglione, I'm, I'm wanting to talk to Luke Fickle. I don't know if he would have interest in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably there is going to be some overlap between the candidate pools at Oklahoma and Notre Dame, some. Uh, but the one thing that Oklahoma has done well is hired football coaches, yeah. generally speaking. They've done a great job with that. So I trust Joe Castiglione to go out and get somebody good. Yeah, and what do you think, Dan, about this idea that um... – I'm just thinking about where these two coaching searches will go. They don't seem to be heading in the direction of like another domino toppler. You know what I mean? Like if Notre Dame goes out and promotes Freeman, for example, obviously that's case closed, but they go out and get fickle. Okay. So Cincinnati's open. Like that, that's not going to cause a rippling effect. If Oklahoma goes out and get Venables, obviously that doesn't cause a ripple effect. So I was seeing someone or something I've been written in the wake of this, like, Oh boy, here, the cycle is going to get crazy again. Do you see that happening? I just don't see these two jobs. They're premier jobs. I just don't see the pool guys they're looking at really causing a trickle-down effect through much of the FBS, or at least much of the Power Five. Yeah, I would agree. And the caveat to that is by the time a lot of people listen to this podcast, these situations may end up being decided already. Things Mm -hmm. move fast and they change quickly. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know that either of those jobs is going to go out and poach a – Big, big, big time candidate. You know, maybe Matt Campbell gets involved at one of those two. He could be a candidate for um, 
for either one. And then Iowa State's open, but Iowa State would be hiring from probably the group of five level, assistant coaching level, something like that. So, yeah, I don't don't know that we're going to see another just major thunderbolt of of activity here. Uh, We've seen some other jobs get filled. Kalen DeBoer is the new head coach at Washington. Uh, Brett Pry, defensive coordinator at Penn State, is going to be the head coach uh, at uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, I don't know. What what did you make of that one? Um, He's got connections to the program, connections recruiting down there. We spoke about Tech being open, and they have to get a guy in there who's going to be able to recruit the certain areas that have led to their success in the past. I think Pry is that guy. Look, James Franklin is the closer for Penn State. So when you see those like rivals or 24-7 list of the guys that Pry has brought in, Give him a lot of credit for that, but Franklin obviously is a big deal. Um, but he's a guy who connects with folks down there, so I like that hire. For DeBoer, look, the only only one coach in like the last five years has developed a Washington quarterback, and it's him, um, and Jay Kaner, who transferred to Fresno, who will probably end up transferring back to Washington to join him. So not flashy, but he's the kind of guy where if you talk to coaches, um, coaches really like him. They think he's inventive. They think he's really smart. So I think that, that matters. That, that counts for something. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those schools did did pretty well under the circumstances. Uh, this was not a great year to try to get into the marketplace to hire a coach. It seems like Miami may may be waiting another year. Miami may end up keeping Manny Diaz. They don't have an athletic director. That's a bit of a problem in yeah. this whole thing. So I think they want to get an athletic director hired first. Um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, with, with Notre Dame – Something tells me that that they're going to end up with Fickle, but you could have a you could have an issue because we don't know what Cincinnati's playoff situation is yet, you know. And Notre Dame is going to have to. I, I, Luke Fickle's not going to pull a Brian Kelly, you know. He's not going to uh, walk out the door before we know if they're in the playoff or not. And then from mm-hmm. there, it's just a matter of if he wants the job. How long is Notre Dame willing to wait? Could he take the job and still coach Cincinnati in the playoff? It gets a little tricky. But he's he just seems obvious that he would be the guy. Yeah. So if Urban Meyer wanted the job, what are the chances of that happening? Are they, in, are they uh, less than 1%? 1%? 2%? Could they, is there any possible way if, if Urban said, hey, I actually want this job, that Notre Dame could make that happen? I don't see it. Yeah. I think Urban is too toxic right now. I think mm-hmm. not only just everything that happened with Ohio State and the way all that ended, just it, he's just had so many chips away at his credibility. And then the lap dance thing, you know, that is kind of the last big no, uh, Urban Meyer story. I'm not sure that the – you know, the, the people at Notre Dame would, would look too kindly on that. I just don't see it. I, I think Urban's time as a college coach has passed. Yeah. If it will be a good hire, um, clearly a guy who's been waiting for this opportunity wouldn't get it done. So that would be good for, for Notre Dame, I think. I mean, How about that decision by him not to take Michigan State, be? by the way? Oh, yeah. No, think I mean, about him gambling on himself. I, I think we've seen a few coaches. I mean, how about – uh, how many jobs did Billy Napier turn down? You know, and then he ends up, and this is now an afterthought, but he he gets the Florida job. You know, Billy Napier, he turned down offer after offer after offer for a lot of good jobs, and you're just kind of wondering, what is he waiting for? Well, mm-hmm. it turns out he's waiting for a job the level of Florida, and he, and he nailed it. Yeah. No, good point. 
So I would. Just, um, let me just ask you real quick on this. Would yeah. it be too risky for Notre Dame to hire Marcus Freeman as the head coach? It depends if you believe that what Kelly is saying, that he's left it in place where that could be sustained success. Are these success for a first time head coach to get through two years and learn how to do this job? But you're giving the job to a guy who's never been a head coach before. That's tough. Look, I, I don't I don't know Marcus Freeman well at all. I think my dealings with him are limited. The last time I spoke to him, I think he was at Purdue, which tells you how long ago that was. Um, but his reputation is as a, a really smart guy who connects with young men. Um, so, look, he's qualified to be a head coach. I just don't know if that's Notre Dame. But uh, one thing I would say, Dan, I know you would agree with me because you've mentioned this before. Marcus Freeman getting hired by Notre Dame is a transformative moment um, in the history of coaching. Young black man being named the head coach at Notre Dame is an enormous moment. Um, uh, so I think that as a time when there are no coaches of color really being hired in this cycle, um, really be a, 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 a game-changing decision. And if he has success, he could open a lot of doors for a lot of people. So um, I would keep an eye on that. I think he's a good candidate. I just don't know if you have a chance to hire Fickle if you promote in-house. Yeah, it's interesting, and I I, I know that uh, Jack Swarbrick is going to have to move fairly quickly uh, to figure out what what he wants to do here. All right, let's get to actual football, and let's just start it with this sentence. If the favorites hold in the rest of the games in this college football season, the national championship game is going to be Georgia versus Michigan. How about that? Crazy to think about. Yeah, but you're Georgia one, Michigan two, Cincy three, Oklahoma State four. Probably, right? I don't I don't think it's actually it's possible Oklahoma State gets to three. I don't think that's a stretch. Um and, and Cincinnati gets bumped down to four after they beat after OSU beats Baylor. But yeah, those are your four, and I think the, the gambling odds would be Georgia against Michigan. I think that'd be a really, really watched game. Wouldn't quite be Alabama-Michigan, but that would have a lot of interest, uh, mostly because of Harbaugh-Michigan. There's no doubt. And, I mean, that team was just so impressive against Ohio State. And we we talked about the idea that they could, at home, this could finally be the year. I mean, we made fun of it a little bit just because mm-hmm. it's like we'll believe it when we see it. But those guys just physically – and you can tell from the first drive, because what had happened in a lot of these Michigan-Ohio State games before, Ohio State made Michigan look slow and plotting and and not all that physical. And what happened in this game, opening drive, boom, run it down your throat, run it down your throat, get behind your defense, show your speed. And those guys just kept doing it for all 60 minutes. And it was really a beautiful performance to watch. And to me, like, I wouldn't sit here and say Michigan is going to win the national championship, but that was a national championship-type performance in that game. And this team's ceiling is a lot higher than I ever gave them credit for. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they'd beat Georgia, but that was the blueprint for beating Georgia. I just don't think that they'd have that kind of success on the ground. But it's an interesting matchup we want to plan ahead. Like, Michigan plays the way they did on Saturday. Certainly on defense, they can slow down Georgia. It's a, it's a really good game. Um Ohio State still looked athletic to me. I mean, they made athletic plays, certainly on the outside with those receivers and with Stroud. But, yeah, Michigan, for the first time under Harbaugh, first time in a long time, dictated what the game was going to look like and what the flow of that game was going to be. So um, we should also mention Harbaugh saying some people think they 
are born on third and think they hit a triple. Yes. Is an unbelievable quote. And I don't think that's gotten the kind of praise that we should, it should have gotten. He basically said, Hey, Ryan day, you think that you're a successful coach. You just inherited a dynasty. So, um, um, I think that's the hardball that kind of went for two against USC when Carroll was there. We've missed that guy. Yeah, that had been a huge part of the Harbaugh persona was pushing and prodding and making himself part of the conversation. I mean, if you look at him on Twitter, I used to have an alert on my phone every time Harbaugh tweeted something <laughs> because – and he's one of the very few people I did that for because it was liable to be something nuts and cause, like, some huge controversy in college football. He, like, hasn't tweeted in over a year. Mm. Just gone. Like, he's just gone. You know what I mean? So he had – kind of disappeared from the scene as, as this disruptive force. And it felt like maybe that, a little bit of that, that twinkle is back in his eye. But his football team is playing great. And they obviously, from a defensive standpoint, Mike McDonald, I mean, that's just as brilliant of a, of a coordinator hire for a guy that none of us really knew who, they, who he was. I mean, kind of maybe the, the defensive equivalent of what happened with LSU and Joe Brady mm-hmm. a couple years ago. And... Um, yeah, I mean, that's a very likable team. They they got the two defensive ends who are just wrecking people. Uh, their offensive line is is playing really well. They got two good running backs. Like, there's a lot to like there. And I I, I think they're gonna I think they're gonna get this done against Iowa. I know Michigan fans are are gonna be nervous for that game uh, because it would be kind of a Michigan thing to like choke choke away this opportunity. But uh, I have a lot of confidence in this team. Yeah, they've got no no business losing this game. All due respect to Iowa. Hey, you don't have a vote, so you can answer this question. Who, who would you, as of today, put your top three Heisman guys? Do you give Hutchinson a chance? Like, would you put him in your top three? I mean, he had. Well, I, I think, think he had 15 QB pressures against Ohio State. 15. I think he got himself on the radar in in the Ohio State game, and I think if he does another performance, not necessarily has to be that good, but a, a performance against Iowa where he stands out in some way, I do think there's a chance he's he, a good chance he'll be in the top three. I, look, this is such a strange Heisman situation right now where there's just mm-hmm. no, not only is is there no favorite, like there's nobody who even has been like building a consensus at all. I mean, typically right now we either know who it's going to be or there's like three guys who are getting all the attention. I mean, right now it just seems so scattered. I couldn't even begin to sort it out because a lot of the really good players are defense. Yeah, I think it's Bryce Young. I mean, if he plays well against Georgia, they don't even really? have to win. Yeah, really? if he plays well, they don't even have to win, honestly. Because who else are you going to pick? It's not going to Stroud anymore, unfortunately. I don't think he played poorly at all against Michigan, but last impressions matter. Um I don't think a lot of people are going to vote for Kenny Pickett. I think there are actually a lot of people who vote who don't even know who Kenny Pickett is. They think he's the guy who, who charged at Gettysburg. They don't have a clue. So I don't think that he's going to get any votes. I think Bryce Young is like kind of the default guy. You're like you don't know who you're going to vote for. Just give it to the guy who's starting quarterback of Alabama, has 40 touchdowns. So it's kind of a no-brainer. But uh, I like to see people be inventive this year. There's a long snapper for Marshall who deserves some recognition. I might throw him on there. <laughs> well, the problem with Bryce Young is he didn't play that well against – Auburn, which leads us into this other discussion about the playoff. Because of what happened in the Iron Bowl, is Alabama finally off the – I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. 
is is that is the benefit of the doubt that we typically give Alabama in these situations? Is it over? Do they have to beat Georgia to get in this thing? Is there any way that with a second loss, because of how they've looked in certain games and in particular the Iron Bowl, is there any way that they could still get in this thing with a loss? I, I think the answer to that depends on on this, Dan. Um, this year's committee is so predominantly ADs. I think Willingham's the only coach on the panel. So what does a group of ADs think about the comparison of a two-loss non-conference champ against a one-loss Notre Dame team that doesn't have its head coach anymore, who left their program and left their team kind of in alert days before the, the conference championship weekend? That's an interesting dilemma, right? I mean, what does that group think about that comparison? What precedent do you want to set that it's okay to leave your team at this point to chase a mega contract or that we should put a two-loss Alabama team in that hasn't really deserved it? Dan, they haven't deserved the benefit of the doubt all season. Let's just be fair. They haven't. Um, so they're not going to get it if all things being equal. But if you get into a position where it's two-loss Alabama against one-loss Notre Dame, I think that's that's the most intriguing comparison, I think, in the history of the playoff. Um, wow. if it comes down to those two teams. And look, it will potentially come down to those two teams. I don't think there's a third team that gets into that conversation unless you're talking about 11-2 and two Baylor, Big 12 champs. You take eleven and two Baylor over eleven and one Notre Dame, eleven and two Alabama. I don't think so. No, you're right. So I think there's a chance. Let me just think of the scenario here. Yeah, you just need one of those favorites to lose outside of Georgia, and all of a sudden the point begins to be Georgia, whatever combination of the two others, and then four number four, eleven and one Notre Dame against eleven and two Alabama. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I don't know what that committee is going to do, but it, that is a dilemma. Um, I don't think they faced anything really like that because it has nothing really that much to do with on-field performance in that comparison. I think you're looking at off-field stuff, certainly for Notre Dame. Yeah, well, that's where the Brian Kelly leaving right now, I mean, would really screw Notre Dame. Because if the committee basically uses that to say, yeah, well, Notre Dame's not going to be as as good or as prepared or as competitive because their coach left, I mean, that would just be one of the biggest travesties I can think of. It's not, it's not. It's not fair to the players. They they had no. They had nothing to do with what happened. Yeah, I, I, it's not fair to the players. I completely agree with you. It's not fair to the players. Now, I think that is that is a question they're going to have to answer. Now we could also make the argument in that comparison that Alabama's the better team, quote unquote, regardless of Brian Kelly or not, and but, probably be some support for that idea. But Notre Dame's playing better than Alabama right now. So if you in the past it's been who's hot. Ohio State was hot. Right. TCU and Baylor not as hot. Notre Dame's hot. I mean, crappy teams that they've played. Stanford, Navy, uh, Virginia, someone else. Virginia's good. But they've played good football. They yeah. played really good football, specifically on defense. Um, so they're playing better right now. But, yes, Alabama would be, what, a 10, 14-point favorite? No, that's unfair. Seven, eight, nine-point favorite against Notre Dame Some, right now yeah, in neutral field? probably. So probably. it's going to be really interesting. I think the committee is um, – they're going to leave their hats at the door, Dan, but they are going to root for the uh, for Chalk. Chalk would be good for the committee. All right, well, as we get to the end of the podcast, let's run down these championship games and see what we think is, is going to happen. Let's start with the SEC, Georgia-Alabama. I'll be honest with you. I think Georgia's going to win this game by a lot. And Define the reason I think that, three touchdowns. Oh, oh, man, Alabama has not lost – well, no – they lost, they lost that game to Clemson. Clemson. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, would be shocking, but believable. Why do you think that is? Do you think Alabama's got no shot? I think they have almost no shot. And the reason is because 
they can't protect Bryce Young. They can't block. They can't run. So basically, the way I see this game playing out is Alabama is going to be forced to just have Bryce Young drop back as many times as possible and try to hit some big passing plays. And they may hit some. They might. Mm -hmm. But I also think he's going to get sacked a bunch, and I think they're going to turn it over because Georgia up front is going to just dominate them that much. And I think it will just get away from Alabama. I don't know if it'll be quickly or gradually, but I just think the sort of boa constrictor type of game that Georgia can play, just like Alabama used to be able to play, will eventually break that thing open in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I agree. This looks like, kind of feels like Alabama-Florida last year. One team needed to get things done through the air over and over and over again. The other team was just better, more complete. Weird sentence about to happen, Dan. It would be a shock if Alabama beat Georgia. It would. I agree. No, I agree. It would be a shock. But uh, I give them a shot because I've been conditioned to respond to Alabama SEC championship games and Alabama against saving assistance to assume Alabama will win. But they're probably not going to win. All right, the second most watched championship game will be Michigan-Iowa. We've kind of touched on this. I'm not sure how much more we need to say. Michigan, big? Uh, Michigan, if they take care of business, they should win this by 14-plus. Iowa is limited. Um, Very limited. If we watch the uh, day after Thanksgiving game against Nebraska, I think they had one scoring drive, like one true scoring drive. I didn't watch it too closely. I think they had one true scoring drive. And then had a bunch of special teams and other trash. So control your turnovers, run the ball on first down against Iowa, and Michigan should win this 14, 17 points and be number two in the final rankings, no doubt. In the Big 12, Baylor, Oklahoma State, and as we know in the Big 12, it's a round-robin schedule, so they played before uh, earlier this year. On October 2nd, it was a 10-point Oklahoma State win in Stillwater. It was a competitive game. The one thing that would give me some pause here in just going all in on Oklahoma State is it's hard to get teams emotionally peaked two weeks in a row. Mm -hmm. Really hard. And I just wonder if Oklahoma State is going to have trouble coming down off Bedlam, a game they never win, and that was a huge deal for them to win that game, take a breath, recalibrate, and get ready to beat a very good team for a second time. I'm not sure they're quite good enough to do that. I'm going to go with Baylor to pull the upset. Oh, okay. Hey, I don't really think that's an upset. I think it is by the spread, but I don't think that's necessarily an upset. Um, I put zero stock whatsoever into beating Tech by a field goal. Tech's played really, really well, strangely, since they hired on McGuire. Like, I don't know if there was a coincidence there or not, but they played really good football like three weeks in a row. I don't put a whole lot into it. Um, I would pick Oklahoma State because I think they're confident. And maybe confidence and optimism and a light at the end of the tunnel kind of breaks you through in a game like like you said. is not necessarily – it's not a trap game at all. They know what's happening, but will help them stay elevated against Baylor. Interesting thing I think about is um, we give Dave Aranda a lot of credit as a defensive mastermind. What can he do facing the same team, not – the same program in back-to-back right. years, but the same team twice in two months. What is he going to imagine? So Baylor's got a clear shot at this thing. I would take Oklahoma State. Again, it's a safer bet. All right, so we're on different sides of that. That's good. Uh, the AAC, Houston-Cincinnati, obviously Cincinnati, huge deal. And, look, they may get screwed 
even if they win. We'll see what the committee does. But they've got to play a Houston team that, that won 11 in a row. And, you know, I called Dana Holgerson Coach Ski Mask because it looked to me like he was stealing, stealing money uh, after they lost their season opener to um, Texas Tech. That was a bad loss, yeah. especially in retrospect. It was a bad loss at the time, even worse in retrospect. But they've won 11 in a row. And uh, how much of a challenge? I, I, I mean, I'll be honest. I've not watched a lot of Houston this year. How much of a challenge do you think that's going to be for Cincy? I don't know, Jack, about Houston. I think I've probably watched three games they played all season. Just got to be honest. Yeah, um, no, I mean they have not played a lot of like big, big games. That's they're not on. They're on TV. They're just not on my TV a lot. <laughs> like okay. you know what I mean? They're like opposite games that actually have mattered in the past. Um, they've got a good younger quarterback who's had a nice season. I don't know anyone who was picking them to win this game, and why would you? Cincinnati's like on the doorstep of making history. Um, maybe Luke Fickle, like it leaks out, he's taking the job. He's got to address something on, you know, end of the week or something, and that distracts them. But they've been playing well. Desmond Ritter's playing very well. I just don't think they get tripped up at this point. It's actually kind of interesting if you look at the stats. Clayton Toon, the Houston quarterback, and Desmond Ritter, I mean, almost identical stats for the season. Uh, they both thrown right at 3,000 yards, mm-hmm. 26 versus 27 touchdowns. They both thrown eight interceptions, like just extremely similar. And look, Cincinnati's had some games where they've maybe looked a little disinterested. The one thing you don't really know is just how the pressure will affect them, knowing that they need to win this game. They're potentially one game away from the playoff. Does that mess with your mind? We've seen teams in that situation choke, you know, and, and will they choke? That's, to me, that's bigger than, than the fickle stuff. Yeah, it's a good question. I look at a senior quarterback who's got a chance to join the list of the great group of five QBs ever. Um, you got leaders who have been through battles with this team, three-year starters who have played in huge games, Not maybe none as big as this. But, hey, at the time, last year, the game to get into the Peach, right? Peach against Georgia, is that where they played? Um, yeah. That, that At that time – was of the magnitude of this game in a sense, like, hey, we're going to get to this game and, and do something this program hasn't done since Kelly or has never done under Pickle. So I think they're ready for the moment. I don't think they get caught napping. If Houston beats them, it's it's by its own merits. I don't think Cincinnati's going to come out flat. And look, they've been a different team since SMU. We talked about the fact that they played down in competition. They played SMU 8-3 and three at the time or 8-2 and two at the time. They played Eastern uh, East Carolina, that was 5-2 and two in the American at the time, and they got up for both of those games. I thought against East Carolina, that was – game control. So I don't think they get tripped up. The rest of the conference championship games won't really have a huge impact on the playoff, but uh, interesting nonetheless, rematch for Oregon-Utah of a game we saw a couple weeks ago that Utah dominated in Salt Lake City. This one will be in Vegas, neutral field. Uh, we'll see if Oregon can can turn the tables. Uh, Utah, I don't think Utah's won the Pac-12 title under Kyle Whittingham, but they've mm-hmm. gotten close, so this would be a big deal for them. Can they – can they beat a pretty good Oregon team twice in a row? Uh, I think I'd pick Oregon. I think I'd lean Oregon. I'm going to pick Utah because of the idea that the Utes are playing for a Rose Bowl. I think yeah, that's a huge be. deal for those guys. It is. It is. So I'm going to pick them to win. And also, I know playing at night at Rice Eccles, that's a major advantage. That's like a 10-point swing. But having watched that game, I, I don't, like unless half of Oregon's team had food poisoning, I don't know how I could pick them to, to bounce back and beat them. And I know you're going to be fired up for this Pitt-Wake Forest ACC championship game. 
I'm looking for 40s plus on both sides. If I don't get that, Wake's had some 48, 45, 45, 42 games, and so has Pitt. Um, I'm expecting that. I, I'm, I'm hoping for that. I don't know who's going to end up watching that game. The numbers might not be great. Who cares? Well, maybe not. But, but you know what? Both teams are 10 and 2. Like, these are not – these are good teams. Yeah. No, I agree. This, this is not, is not like – This is not a joke. No. These are two good teams, two top 15 teams. Um, so – I guess I'd take Pitt. I haven't done my picks yet. I think you're going to take Pitt. But I like the way that Wake played against Boston College. Must win game. That was the best game they played in like a month. All right. Well, by the time we talk to you guys next, we'll know who the Final Four is going to be. We'll know who's in the playoffs. So that'll be exciting. We'll see what happens on the coaching carousel. Probably get a couple more hires and get some clarity on this Oklahoma-Notre Dame situation. It's a crazy time of year. we got to wrap it up here. Paul, thanks for uh, being with us this week on the College Football Fix podcast. For Paul Meyerberg, I'm Dan Wolken. Everybody has a great week. Enjoy championship Saturday. Talk to you soon. The College Football Fix Podcast. (laughs) With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.